Hi everyone, I'm Matt Goodison. Welcome to Play in the System, the podcast, episode two. Whoosh. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode one. Some really thoughtful discussion and feedback from Richie Vernon, aka Richie Infidels, James Humphreys, aka Jimbo Humphreys, David Gauntlet, Professor of Creativity at Ryerson in Canada. Thank you so much for David Shepherd to appearing on the show. We talked about some really interesting stuff. Ambient music as protest. We talked obviously a lot about creativity and a whole heap of things. So yeah, if you want to go back and check that one out, please do. I'm Matt Goodison. You can find me on all, pretty much all social media platforms apart from TikTok. Should I be on TikTok? I can't work it out. But I'm at Matt Goodison on Instagram. I'm at Matt Goodison on Twitter. They're the two I probably use the most. So if you want to hook up with me, please do. Thanks to Spando Wiro, Graham, who wrote to me a lot about all things infidels. So yeah, I posted him a Infidels original Dead 001 made back in 2003 by our very own hands. And yeah, that blew his mind. So that was really awesome. Thanks for being a fan. Thanks for supporting the band. Genuinely mean it. Also, the Wavescapes maxi single EP mini album, whatever you call it, is here on physical copies. So there's only, I'm looking at them now, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. There's only 12 more of these wonderful cassette tapes left. And uh, this is a collaboration between myself and the artist Catherine Greenwood. Comes on a lovely Catherine Greenwood chosen blue. And uh, yeah, that's a pretty ambient record, ambient cassette. And here it is on, uh, on CD. So yeah, there's probably, I don't know exactly how many, probably about 23 of these left. Thought I'd make a really limited run and they've been selling really, really well on Bandcamp. So yeah, if you're up for that, head over to Bandcamp. Bandcamp are the best company to buy stuff from because they waiver a lot of their fee in favour of supporting us, the artists. So yeah, the episode coming up with Isabel Anderson, we talk about this. We talk about how to be an artist we discuss Daniel E. Kay's recent statements regarding being a musician, which are, if an artist wants to do well in streaming, he or she must adapt to the changing music landscape and increase engagement with consumers. This means that they must maintain a steady stream of releases, which wasn't as necessary in the past. So, yes, Isabel Anderson and myself talk about that quote and what that means to be a musician in the changing 21st century. We also discuss a lot about mental health, well-being and workaholism, as well as how to set up your company, build community and obviously a little bit of coronavirus in there and harmony love and connectivity so thanks for listening it's great to be with you for episode two thanks for all the support i'm on a mission to facilitate creativity in the world i feel like i took on that baton from the late 
I'm really sad about this, Sir Ken Robinson, who passed away this week. So this episode is dedicated to you, Sir Ken Robinson, my hero, who famously argued for the need to foster creativity in his famous talk that you should definitely check out, Do Schools Kill Creativity? I'll lead you to answer that question. See you soon. Thank you very much. Playing the system with Dr. Isabel Anderson. Thank you so much for coming. We've just been having the kind of off-camera preamble chat to kind of work out what we are going to discuss on the podcast. And what I think is quite interesting is we've started almost where maybe normally may end up, mm. which is talking about um, mental health, mm-hmm. self-worth, and mm-hmm. workaholism. So we were both saying, I was saying that, you know, this morning I was kind of tapping my head, you know, are you in there? Are you okay? I don't know. And <laughs> you've been having similar thoughts in this kind of crazy post-COVID, pre-COVID-2 time. So you were talking about workaholism and your mental health. Mm-hmm. You know, how... How do you know if you're you're okay, and what do you do if you aren't okay? Uh, yeah, well, so yeah, we're really starting off with the, the difficult stuff, aren't we, Matt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we <laughs> How do you know jumped, if you're okay? Jump straight in, but I think what's you yeah. know this COVID is 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 a crazy beast, yeah. and I think we're in a new phase, aren't we? We're out of we're out of. I mean, you know. Covid's different for everyone and there's lots of narratives. So I always mm. like to put a disclaimer that my and maybe your perception of what's mm. been going on is very different to yeah. people who have experienced sickness or, you know, yeah. death or any of the kind of Absolutely. very frontline things. I haven't experienced that much of that. So I've had a kind of utopian lockdown. Mm-hmm. Which has been about the sun and the birds and mm. the the you know, maybe what Bertram Russell was saying, you know, in praise of idleness, even yeah. though it wasn't idle, but a calming down. And that was very utopian. Now we're in a new phase that's, I'm finding much harder. Maybe it's, mm. I read a, uh, someone sent me an article on burnout. Like you've gone through mm. this kind of mm-hmm. energy rush of like all this stuff. And now those people are starting to burn out. I'm definitely in that camp. So yeah. we're in a kind of new phase of, of the, the COVID era. And uh, yeah. it's exhausting. It is exhausting. Um, yeah, so I think, for, like, for me, the things that I've found really great about it have been, like you say, I've I've spent a lot more time in nature than I probably would have done. And that's um, even just in my, you know, my back garden, I've really mm. spent a lot of time cultivating that, which has felt really nourishing. And I'm such a typical middle-class white cis woman <laughs> in her 30s. I really am. Yeah. You know, I'm pickling cabbage and growing things in the garden. 
Um, so I'm totally <laughs> subscribing to that stereotype. But I've I found that really nourishing, and I've I've also found not having to be anywhere really good for me because I'm somebody that if I'm if I'm traveling around a lot and if I'm around a lot of people, it really drains me. I am an introvert. I love mm. socializing. I'm good at socializing. But I, I don't, it, it drains me, it really does. Mm. And I need that time at home. So I've found having that time at home really good. And mm. I haven't minded at all that that means that I'm just with my boyfriend, you know, mm. all the time. When we're in proper lockdown, not now, obviously. Um, so yeah, there's that. But then the things that I found tough, and I think that a lot of people, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast who maybe do creative things and are doing things being paid by the hour or projects here and there. What's tough is that then obviously work gets slashed and mm. then you're sort of hustling around trying to make things work. Um, but I think I was doing that anyway. You know, that was kind of mm. my life anyway. It's just, it, it's kind of got even more so because more more work is more precarious now I guess um mm. to, and just to clarify if anyone's wondering like most of my income comes from teaching now so I teach across music production songwriting creative process and personal and professional development um so and I teach mainly at ICMP but also a little bit at BIM as well in London um, so that's my kind of bread and butter, but I'm also starting up a business, um, which is called the Female DIY Musician, and I'm launching the signature course, which is called Home Recording Academy in, sub- in September. So that's that's been so busy, so busy, mm. um, but also with so much uncertainty about how much I'll earn next month and the month after that and six months and... So there's just a lot of pressure there. And what I found was, especially especially August, it's really started coming to a head for me where I've really started kind of um, feeling really frayed at every single edge of my being. And, and I definitely got to that point. It was last week where I was up in London doing assessments um, and it was very intense because I hadn't been up there for a long time. Usually I would spend half the week in London teaching and then I go back to my house in Hastings at the weekend. Um, and I hadn't done that for months. And so I was back up there and it was kind of a taste of what my lifestyle had been like before. Um, and I just felt so, so incredibly tired and exhausted and stressed. And I had so much to do. And I just decided I've got to take time off. So I took Monday and Tuesday off this week. But the thing that I found most shocking for me was that that felt so incredible to take that time off because since Christmas, I've only taken a week off. That's it. And again, I know there's probably lots of people listening to this podcast thinking, well, yeah, like me too. Mm. But the it, that's not okay. That's just not okay. And um, and I've been reading a book about workaholism, like we were talking about before we started recording. And the more I read it, the more I'm like, God, I, I've I've got this. I've definitely got this, and I've got to get a handle on it because the the biggest reason is obviously health wise, but the the second biggest reason is I want to actually enjoy my life. I don't want mm. to feel embittered and I don't want to feel resentful and I don't want to feel exhausted and I don't want I don't want to be looking out at the future feeling pessimistic and that's what happens when you you kind of get into that workaholic tendency and so you were asking how do you know if you're not okay well for me I know I'm not okay if when I'm looking at my future it feels scary and boring or overwhelming or disappointing 
that's when I know I'm not okay. And and when I'm not enjoying, and I don't mean like, you know, over the moon every minute of the day, but when I'm not feeling fulfillment mm. from at least, you know, most of my life. Mm. I don't think that's too much to ask, actually, fulfilment. I'm not talking, like I say, I'm not talking about crazy excitement here, mm. but just a sense of, yeah, I'm taking care of myself. Mm. I'm meeting my, my basic needs. And I'm also able to um, actually kind of respect and appreciate and love myself mm-hmm. as a human. And that's when I know I'm I'm not on the right track. And I, I was really feeling the total opposite last week. So mm-hmm. I very last minute took that time off. I mean, it, Tuesday was my birthday. And, and I just was starting to see these tendencies of like, no, I'll work through my birthday. It's a Tuesday. It's a work day, you know, and just yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. really, really toxic. So, so much to unpack there. But firstly, I'm fascinated. What is workaholism? So workaholism, let me just hang on. I've got the book right by yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, let's that. see the book. <laughs> so workaholism, that's the book. Oh, look at Change that. Change to the, to the desk. <laughs> oh, my and goodness um, me. I know. Imagine and if you bro- actually were chained to your desk. But well, we are, aren't we? We're mentally we chained, yeah. We chain ourselves to our desks a lot of the time and I I think people say oh no 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 it's because my boss is an absolute tyrant or I don't have enough money or all those things and those things are kind of true but if we really are honest um probably a lot of it is a compulsion as well and a a lack of knowing what else to do you know a lack of not having any other strategies to solve those problems Mm. so you just work more Mm. um so this book is written by brian e robinson he was one of the first people to research workaholism um and it's a really good book actually if you're worried about maybe having this it's a great book because it actually talks so i take it that's brian e rather than brian e robinson no brian e (laughs) yeah (laughs) brian e dot robinson we have a my cat's called Eno, and we always um, have a joke. Uh, me and David Shepherd, who I'm in Snow Palms with, who wrote the Brian Eno biography, um, we often joke that the cat's called Brian Eno, <laughs> <laughs> which is probably Aww. sad and probably a dad joke. I don't know, but I love it like this idea. <laughs> or it could be like maybe if I I've got a lot of friends who. Uh, um, run a great um, club and community called Sink the Pink and I mm. often wonder like maybe my drag name would be Bryony No to go alongside like Leona Lewisham oh like, that's just, good yeah love, that's great yeah. that's yeah. a really good one Matt yeah I think you I should think do, yeah, good. yeah that's I a good do, one that's yeah. a good one yeah I like that one right. <laughs> next time you see me Isabel I won't be Matt Goodison anymore no. I'll be Bryony No <laughs> I love that yeah, yeah. totally um, but you'll have um, to obviously make a very extravagant drag um, outfit that has lots of, you know, knobs and levers and... Oh, yeah, yeah. But what, yeah. to break my... You know, you were talking about you being a cultural stereotype. I mean, my cultural stereotype <laughs> is massive. Bald, yeah. glasses. <laughs> like, even I saw, like, a, a, a video on... What is it with modular guys and wedding rings? <laughs> like... Oh, my the, God. You, you that's know, hilarious. I know, but in, you that's watch any... That's hilarious. Mo- you watch I've a never modular, seen that. Yeah, you watch a modular video and the hand will be there twiddling the knobs with the wedding ring on is such a so thing good. that's yeah. so good so i'm such a stereotype and i hate it but <laughs> equally these are the things i love for a whole yeah. heap of reasons yeah. I know. tape machines I know. <laughs> buttons and dials but maybe you know i mean i'm going off on a tangent but 
like I was that guy in the choir at six years old that was delighted. Mm. I had such a passion and love of music for a whole heap of reasons. Mm. And I was that guy where I stopped the choir. Who's singing out of tune? Sing, (laughs) sing, (laughs) sing. It's you. (laughs) Oh, God, that sounds awful. Never sang again Uh, until I I was in my punk band. So I do think there's, you know, there's some kind of relationship between Mm. boys, men, voice, Mm. knobs, (laughs) dials, buttons. But it just just scared the living daylights out of me, you know. Sure it did. So I kind of retreated into things that that weren't emanating from my personage. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, so someone's like, what's coming out of your mouth is not good. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so you're like, okay. That. Okay, yeah. you know. Okay, right. I'll, I'll focus Levers. on something that's not me. Yeah, tapes, yeah. yeah. It's an impersonal yeah. thing. And I, I wonder how many other people have that story. Yeah, I don't that's know. very so, interesting. Um, so workaholism. So what's yeah. the difference then between working hard and working holic? Mm. So, yeah, really, it's like, it's kind of like, um, what's the difference between someone who enjoys drinking socially and someone who's an alcoholic? Yeah, I still haven't figured that out about myself. (laughs) When I open the fridge and and I see the beer and I'm thinking, six o'clock, you'll be mine. Is that enjoying (laughs) the drink or is that that holism? I know. Well, we all, you know, because I have a similar thing. I mean, I, for me, I, I really try and not drink in the week, but when it gets to yeah. Friday, I'm like gin and tonic, gin and tonic, <laughs> yeah, gin and tonic. Yeah. Again, totally uh, subscribing to my stereotype here. What, mm. what thirties middle class woman doesn't love a gin and tonic? Well, like mine is like obviously a punk IPA. It has to yeah. Post Yeah. I do like the taste of it. And you know, I had this question a lot when I was touring, and we both have mm. similar. Mm-hmm. Um, experiences of being a professional musician Mm. so when I was touring you know drinking was such a massive part of that culture and and this sounds insane now but we we drank like Jägermeister for breakfast Um, partly because it was kind of funny but um you know I did question okay so do you need a drink to do your job well being in a band hell yeah I needed a drink to do the job and when I quit drinking for six weeks I sucked I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't be like Matty Infidel, the hat wearing mm-hmm. rock and roller, mm-hmm. unless mm-hmm. I was kind of a really sozzled or b partly sozzled. Because yeah. I just, I, I don't know. It was just, it was part of what I felt like I needed to do that job. So does that that technically maybe made me an alcoholic? You know, and I drank every day, yeah. loads of it. Yeah, I'd say I'd say that lots of us. I think lots of us go through the, those sort of phases in our lives where it plays a bigger part. But I think obviously then there's some people where it tips over and to be really like obviously visibly destructive. Mm. But that doesn't mean that just because you're not visibly, just, you know, destructive to yourself or other people, that it's not an addiction, I guess. Yeah, um, um, it totally freaked me out. And then obviously yeah. after 12, 12 years of it, I felt very unwell, Yeah, you know. And very, yeah. very unwell, mentally, spiritually, physically exhausted mm-hmm. and very unwell. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when uh, I discovered the Ken Robertson video. I found out he died uh, the other day, which I was devastated by. Yeah. Um, leading um, thinker on creativity and education, mm-hmm. essentially, mm-hmm. why is creativity and education ignored when other mm-hmm. things are so promoted? Yeah. And, uh, saw his video and felt galvanised to kind of pick up the 
the uh, whatever you'd call it, the wand of change and do yeah. an MA in education and try and further, which is, you know, has led to things like this, you know, yeah. podcast about creativity and change. Yeah. yeah. Um, but obviously spills out into many other things. Yeah. So, so workaholism then is when you feel maybe what that you don't have self worth doing other things. Is that what it is? I think, I think it's, well, I think it's really complicated. I think that for some people, it's that they, maybe as a child found a lot of retreat and solace in work and in achieving and it was the only way that they could either get peace like maybe you grew up in a family where you had an alcoholic father or mother or something like that and retreating into schoolwork or other kind of work meant that Mm. you had some self-worth and some achievement and some order so that Mm. can be where it starts sometimes but it can be lots of other reasons why it starts and then what it is, is I think the difference between just working hard and being a workaholic is that it spills over into really compromising really mm. fundamental parts of your life, like your family right. life, your health, your mental health, um, your spiritual life, your community life, you know, and it, and it becomes all encompassing and it becomes the the focus of not just your Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, but the evenings, the weekends, even if you're not working, you're thinking about work. So you're mm. sitting at the table with your family and you're thinking about work mm. and you feel almost kind of um not you or scared or panicky or I think a lot of men would not acknowledge that it's fear but maybe you feel frustrated or angry or uncomfortable if you're not working mm. as well so for me like when I realized taking I saw it as four days off it's not it's two days off it's Monday Tuesday but in my head it's four days off because I would work mon- Sunday Saturday Sunday a lot of the time as well even yeah. just in bits so for me to take a full four days off was a big deal mm. and I and I was kind of like oh I'm a bit scared about that because how is all the stuff going to get done and mm. what will I do with four mm. full days and I was like Jesus about that's awful like mm. that's really awful and what I find is when I do take time off, then I'm like, I don't want to go back because it's so black and white. You know, it's so extreme. Right. I'm either working really hard or then occasionally I'll take time off and then I just kind of totally tune out. And then I don't want to, you know, I could tune out for the next however many months. So I think in answer to your question, it's really hard to define it for just in general. But like any addiction, it's where you lose that sense of boundaries, you lose that sense of perspective, you start becoming very black and white thinking about it. Like, if I don't do, you know, these many hours a day, et cetera, et cetera, then um, I, I'm not going to earn enough money and I'll have, you know, everything's going to be awful or mm. everyone's going to think that I'm not committed. Or, and, and a lot of mm. time it's bound up in self-worth around work, mm. that your identity mm your self-worth is bound up in your profession, your Mm. achievements, your career, rather than who you are. Mm. And I very much am somebody that's like that and that I've spent the last kind of 10 years of my life trying to unpick that. And I'm not there yet. I just have a lot more awareness about it. So when I was feeling... um, so I'm able to read this workaholic book and be like, oh, yeah, I, I know this already. It's just, mm. oh, shit, it's actually written in a book. <laughs> Crap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I knew it before because I've done all this work on myself because I've burnt yeah. out so many times and I've suffered the consequences. But um, reading it in a book where someone's actually packaged it up and I'm like, oh, God. And, you know, there were bits that were like, yes, I really relate to that in my childhood or yes, I really relate to that in my parents or, yeah, I really relate to that in terms of how I feel about myself professionally. Um, 
And I think that for me, uh, so for me growing up, I had dyslexia. And so I was never... I was always told that I was just never doing well enough, ever. Mm-hmm. But the only thing that I naturally really excelled at beyond anyone else in this whole school was singing. Mm. So I just, the minute I got up on stage and I opened my mouth, it was the most natural thing ever. And what, you know, it would just come out and, and I'd be like, great, okay cool Mm. I didn't have to work at it at all and I still have that like I haven't been Mm. playing for so long because of um chronic pain which is like a fallout of the burnout but um I picked up my guitar a few times recently and did some lives on my music page and um and I when I watch them back I'm like god it's so natural this is so easy oh my god because everything Mm -hmm. else I do in my life just doesn't feel that easy at all and I think a lot Mm -hmm. of musicians find that but for me having dyslexia especially um I I really found a lot of kind of sanctuary in music mm. of, mm. oh, finally, I can just be me and I can just turn up and it's good enough. That mm. feels really nice. But then now, obviously, life isn't just singing unless you're Adele or someone like that. Life mm. is lots of different things. And obviously, I have lots of other skills as well. But, um, but I think it instilled in me this sense that I have to work my fucking ass off mm. to to get and and I'm fine with working hard I mean the the good thing about it is it instilled in me a really good work ethic where I think other Mm. people they leave school and they're like oh what things aren't just going to fall on my lap what's this whereas I left school and I was like yeah okay bring it on let's do it I've been here before Mm. I've had to work my ass off just to get my maths GCSE you know whatever Mm. and so for me it's been good and it's but it's spilt over a lot of the time I think partly because of doing music because there is no end nobody's paying you much you know at the beginning especially um I had to work so hard for so many years to get any kind of proper income from my music which was Spotify mm. so I've never been in a situation where I've been signed to a label and they'd be like here's a retainer or yeah, any other kind of situation where I just get paid for my music, apart mm. from from the really fucking hard graft that I've put in and yeah. then built up as a DIY artist. I think that's what's so unique about you and certainly uh, something we connected over mm. is that, you know, you have worked so hard on all these things, like you've got a PhD, mm. you're a great teacher, you're starting a company, which I remember when I first... Um, got invited to co-mark some work with you um, on a creativity module, which I was delighted to accept. I remember Googling you and the normal pattern is PhD, uh, starting company, and you expect to see, oh, they've got some music on Spotify, you know, the little funny Mm -hmm. triangle under a thousand. And you're like, your plays are just (laughs) insane. I was like, oh my God, you know, there's like 40 million plays of your work, which is just so awesome. And I remember being totally pumped to meet you. Um, But you have, you know, you really built that yourself. So... Mm. You know, I I feel, you know, a, a real relationship to that story because my band, um, Infidels, we followed a similar model. We really mm. grew it from the ground up. We started our own record label. We pressed mm. our own vinyl. We built it step by step. We did jump ship and sign to Sony ATV and Wall of Sound and these whole companies. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm expecting my journey was predated yours by a couple of years because this was sort of oh. 2003. Yes. And, um, yeah. A good that was the ten, last. Ten years exactly. That yeah. was the last like rope down from the helicopter. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of, like, <laughs> yeah. That was the last opportunity for that before yeah. the industry radically changed. So, 
I'm a real advocate of that model of taking off from the mm. ground, running, doing your own thing. What advice would you give um, to all those young people out there who are kind of beginning that journey? Mm-hmm. I'd say start before you're ready. It's so simple, but start before you're ready. Clarity comes after action. So, so Mm. many people think, oh, I have to have everything in place and I have to have this budget and I have to have, you know, this all set up. No, just just release something. And also, uh, and and release it imperfectly. Just Mm. resign yourself to releasing imperfectly. It's fine. My first release is so riddled with flaws, but actually a lot of those flaws I love and I wouldn't change it. And people are sometimes asked, would you go back and redo that? And I'm like, no. I wouldn't because I love going back. I mean, I don't like I don't do this all the time, but the the rare <laughs> what, you don't occasions sit there every day. And yeah. go, I'm just going to vibe myself up. Isabel Anderson album yeah. one. Let's go. I'm just going to spend the whole day going through my back catalogue. Uh, no, I don't do that. But what I do do occasionally is because somebody will share something online and it'll remind me of like, oh yeah, that song. God, that's like from my first album. Yeah. And if I play play anything from that first album, I just think, God, it's so cool. Like, I love the mm. fact that it's so it's quite quirky in very subtle ways. I, I was in my MA doing my MA in Sonic Arts. I was experimenting with some really subtle ideas about spatialization and all that kind of stuff. So it's not perfect. It's not what you would release on a major record label. But I kind of love that. So mm. I think if anyone's sitting here thinking, like listening, and even if it's not an album, even if it's a book, if it's a course, mm-hmm. if it's a dance piece, whatever you're, whatever you're working on, start before you're ready. Because the point is, is that the actual process of releasing something, putting it out into the world, that is still part of the creative process and you need to learn that. And mm. you only learn that by doing. You don't learn it by hearing somebody talk you through it because it's going to be different for everybody. So that's number one, start before you're ready. Number two is don't release your favourite song first. Because everyone's like, oh, I, I just, I want to release something, but, my, but there's this song that is my best song and I haven't recorded it yet. And so I'm, I'm not going to release anything until that's ready. And, and I always say to people, don't try, that. well, also people say, I don't, I, my, my songs aren't good enough yet. Mm. So, so this goes for any other creative output, like I said before, don't release your best work yet, like first. Don't, because you're going to mm. learn so much about releasing. So if your best song right now, it won't be your best song forever, or if your best book right now or whatever it is, release that second or third, because mm. then you'll lo- know so much more about releasing. So mm. those are my two bits of advice, and it often cuts through a lot of the bullshit that people are telling mm. themselves about why they can't release right now. You can. Mm. You can. Mm. And um, and the point is not to release so that you immediately kind of have this overnight success and everyone loves you and everyone thinks you're the, the most amazing thing on the planet. It's to actually move the, f- the needle further towards you becoming a professional creative because mm. the first time you launch something it's not going to do that unless some crazy shit happens in the universe mm. but other than that it's not going to do that what it's going to do is teach you so many useful lessons so that next time you launch even better mm. you know does that make sense i think that's great and um i totally get it i think um I've always been afforded a really positive attitude to music and and sharing music and releasing music. And I think that's come from my mum and dad um, and my sister, where um, 
music was a really liberating free space in my house. My dad is an enormous music lover. He had the biggest record collection, which pre-Spotify was just a gift, you know, Mm. like, you know, Mississippi field recordings from the 1930s through to, you know, rare jazz records. And my mum, you know, was a lover of all things with a kind of vibe. So Bill Withers and, you know, Mm. Phil Collins and all that kind of stuff. And, um, Music, my dad's a great musician in so much as he just plays and he gigs and he just does it and he loves it and he just loves it all the time and he plays all the time. And and to me, I, I kind of always come back to this word practice. Mm. I think a lot of people see practice as, certainly when they're kind of emerging as musicians, practice is this stick that you get whacked with. You're not doing your yeah. practice. Wow. Yeah. And practice is just what you do when you do it. Mm-hmm. So you can't not do your practice because your practice mm-hmm. is just what you do. Yeah. Whether you play the piano once a week or never or look at it or throw balls at it, it yeah. doesn't matter. That's your practice. So yeah. you can't not do your practice. Your practice is just to be. It's a very Absolutely. zen concept to me now. And I've always had that. So in music, it's been very liberating and I've released music very easily and mm-hmm. always have and found that that very freeing. And, and now I'm thinking about writing a book. I get it. I mm-hmm. get the forces of nature against you, the evil yeah. tentacles in the mind. But what's yeah. it going to be? Oh, but there's 10 books. Oh, yeah. well, I don't know which one's the best one. Oh, you know, and that's come from my bad, you know, my educational chip yeah. on my shoulder. I'm not good enough. I'm dyslexic as well. Yeah. People, are, I'm going to reveal to the world what a moron I am once and for all. And it's going to be in yeah. stone. Yeah. And, you know, and the fear is huge. But I know I've got a book. I know I've got several books mm-hmm. but can i for the life of me get the damn thing written and get it out no but i'm gonna change that and yeah. i'm gonna change it to exactly what you're saying mm-hmm. the first book is not going to be the best book i've ever yeah. written yeah or read it's yeah. not going to be the definitive book but i need to just do one hour a day writing the book Absolutely. and repeat until the book eventually gets done and then released and then I can move on. Because yeah. if it's that important to me, which it is, mm-hmm. I need to stop the barriers and um, and take some of my musical practice, which is I see, I see now making music as almost live Polaroids. So I mm-hmm. made a, an album with an artist, Catherine Greenwood, in lockdown mm-hmm. yeah. because it just felt like I wanted to take this picture is the album perfect? Hell no. Yeah. Could, could it, would it be different if I did it now? Yes. But yeah. it wouldn't be the same Polaroid. And I'm really no. proud of that record will stand as my experience in that time. With, Absolutely. You know, there's even like bits where we're trying to record vocals. My wife is a singer. And we've got like the baby monitor on. So there's like Artie, you know, kind of wailing in the back. Not wailing. <laughs> That makes it sound really bad. It sounds like we were ignoring him while we were recording. We were doing his doing his noises. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whatever. I don't know. Babies over monitor noises. And I'm really yeah. proud of all that. And yeah. the kids were in the studio a lot and it was all done early morning. Yeah. So um, it is what it is. And I totally agree with you and, and love. Uh, we've got a kind of mutual appreciation, I think, for um, Stephen Pressfield's The War of mm, Art mm-hmm. and uh, Austin Cleon's books. Mm, mm-hmm. And I always show that slide to um, to emerging musicians of, um, oh, my recording has been automatically stopped. There we go. Restart. The camera only does 30-minute uh, chunks oh, and I have yeah, to restart yeah, okay. it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, so I always show that slide from Austin Cleon of don't wait until you know who you are Mm. to begin your work. And I think that's so important because, like you said, the doing is the finding out. Yeah, it is. So it is. I mean, like coming back to your writing, when I the thing that I can kind of relate to, I've never written a book, but I've written a PhD. And my first chapter... I came back to it at the end of my PhD. So the PhD took me five years and in the kind of end of the fourth year, I came back to my first chapter, totally rewrote it because mm. I was like, this this isn't important and this isn't written very well. And, you know, but I'd have never got to the, that point where I could look back and say, this isn't right if I hadn't written the first chapter. Yeah. And you just have to start. You really do. And when I look, even my first journal article that's been, that was published, I've got five five journal articles that I published over that, that time as well. And when I look back at that first one, I'm like, it's it like it's not terrible, and people do even cite it. Like I get noted mm. when it gets <laughs> cited, mm-hmm. and I'm a little bit kind of like, oh no, not that one. I've got better ones. I've got better journal yeah. articles, you know. And um, even things that have been published, my first one wasn't my best one. No way, yeah. no way. Yeah. But I just, I knew I just had to get started, and it's the same with um, with releasing, and it's the same with so me um, launching the course that I'm launching. That's a really good example of where I didn't know who I was in terms of providing some kind of resource for women in music. I didn't know mm. at the beginning. And so I started with a Facebook group, which is called the Facebook, I mean, the Female DIY Musician Tribe. That reminded Facebook. me yesterday of, um, did you see, sorry to cut you off, but did you see the uh, the Donald Trump interview? That was no, someone, I didn't. Someone who was talking about Donald Trump said, yes, um, I'm the delegate forever in America and I, I'm... I'm voting for Donald John President. <laughs> Live on television. Oh dear. <laughs> so yeah, you launched your Facebook group. Yes, called, I've, I launched my Facebook. Facebook group called Facebook. Yeah, <laughs> I launched Facebook. Yeah, <laughs> they just cut me out, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, so nice. I launched my my Facebook group, but it was very called, kind of called Donald John. President. Called called Donald John John Facebook. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's so easy coming up with names. Yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> so what was your, so, your so Facebook anyway, group? The, the point is, is the the point that I'm making, I guess, is that that at the beginning that was so open, it was so just like I'm just re- pro- providing lots of tips for women yeah. who want to get the music out. And then the more I kept doing it, I kept going live every week. I got to know people a bit better. I then was like, right, I, I want to make a course. I want to mm. um, actually teach women how to release music. And then I did loads of interviews with um, women who gave me very generously gave me their time. And the more I kept doing this stuff and showing up and talking to people, the more I realised, oh crap! Actually, the reason why there's not as many people, women releasing music, is because not as many women have recordings. And the reason not mm. as many women have recordings is because not as many women feel comfortable recording themselves and going into studios. So well, then I was I mean, like, this is such a big problem and and something that I'm incredibly committed to why do you think that is 
Well, that's a big question. But I mean, I think your experience that you shared of you being in the choir and somebody saying, oh, Matt, mm. you're out of tune. That's not good. It doesn't sound good. Mm. And then you being like, oh, crap. Well, maybe I need to look outside of myself to make music. I think that a lot of the time women have the opposite experience. And and I think also, you know, when I think about my experience growing up, now I grew up in, you know, I was really kind of consciously growing up in the 90s, let's say. I was born in the 80s, but I was growing up in the 90s. And what could I see in music, I could see um, mainly women were front singers. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they wrote the music, but not not all the time at all. Not very often, really. Um, especially people who were in the in the mainstream, anyway. Even women who were experimental, like PJ Harvey, Bjork, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, were very much kind of beautiful strange singers they were all very photogenic very thin um none of them were ever on instruments apart from pj harvey was on a guitar but none of them were really kind of especially on electronic instruments Mm. um and there were really no female producers that i knew at all and when i would when i was at school i never had anyone ask me do you want to come back and try out this new synth that i've got or this new even four track tape recorder girls Mm. weren't doing that so Mm. even me playing an instrument even me playing guitar was really unusual like me actually Mm. getting guitar lessons was really unusual as a girl Mm -hmm. so there's that as well and then I think um also just the fact that there's a, a narrative well also when you step in a room so I tried to do the music technology A level, but it been totally oversubscribed and it was all dudes. So I couldn't do it. Um and then whenever I did music technology modules in my undergrad, it was almost all guys and it was mm. me and maybe one other woman. Did my MA in Sonic Arts, it was me and one other girl out of seventeen people. Then I did my PhD and it was me out one of five women out of thirty people. So you're just always um at the moment, you're you're still mm. always in the minority. But I think even growing up, you just don't get primed, I think, in the same way. Um, but the problem is is systemic, isn't it? Because the the women are there. So you know you've got uh, Sister Rosetta mm-hmm. Th- Th- Thorpe. Is it? I've forgotten her I think surname. So, yeah. But, who played incredible Gibson mm-hmm. SG blues yeah. guitar, totally rocking. Um, and then there's all the electronic pioneers: Susan Chiani, mm-hmm. Delia Derbyshire, uh, Wendy Carlos, um, Laurie Spiegel. Mm-hmm. And they just have been buried. Yeah. I mean, that's emerging now, this... Yeah, yeah, it's it's been great. It's like a kind of, um, what would you call it, like a a excavation almost of, you know, a history of women in electronic music, which is great. And I think that for me, like, I always used to listen to music and I'd, I'd listen to the whole of it. You know, so mm. I'd listen. I had I really picked out the melodies and the lyrics, obviously. And the first thing I started doing was singing, and then playing with guitar, and then writing songs. But what I also was fascinated by was how people got certain sounds and mm. how certain textures layered up, and what those sounds made me feel. Mm. Um, and I think the other thing, and this is what where my method of teaching um, women production and recording is really different because. I really focus on how you want your music to feel, not mm. just how you what what a certain button does in mm. practical terms. So I, I start with how do you want your music to emotionally feel? How does it need to feel? Mm. And then how do we do that? 
Mm. Um, and I think that whenever I learned about technology, that was just stripped right out of it. And you'd only mm. get that through your own self-reflection or if you were lucky enough to have some really cool friends who would talk about that stuff with you. Which is fascinating because if you watch any, well, I mean, not any, but if you watch a lot of interviews with successful producers, I was watching um, No ID talking on the Ableton mm. Loop conference when I went there and he was talking very much like production is his story and you're, you're yeah. just, you're telling this story yeah. through sound yeah. and that's so different from the hard knee soft knee on the compression ratio mm-hmm. means that the curve goes exponential Absolutely. rather than linear and that's such a different yeah. approach and my experience has been I interviewed Alex Metric um not for this podcast for mm. a series of Westminster conversations and quite often when I read interviews with a lot of successful practitioners they are not I mean, this is not exclusive, but they're not always as technologically savvy as no. you would expect them to be. They no. are incredible creative practitioners. Mm. But in my experience, there's there's not a, a line that says the more technical knowledge you have, the more your music communicates to your audience. No, absolutely not. In fact, and... I'd say it's probably like... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think um, I think you're right. I think that people really get hung up. And again, I think there's a kind of, it, it's a, a machismo which is damaging to both women and men and, you know, any gender you ascribe to. Mm. But mm. Um, but it's, it's damaging to everyone because I know guys that feel really crippled by it, especially in learning environments where they just don't feel like they can ask questions because it will make them look like they don't understand every single detail of every single thing they're doing technically. But I think it, this, is, um, this is something I've been meaning to bring up through this whole conversation because what I'm interested in with this, pos- this podcast is, is creativity as a, as a mm. force and the system, the world mm-hmm. that we exist as creatives yeah. within. And I think this is... This is such a cultural phenomenon and it goes back to Ken Robinson talking about creativity in education mm. and some a, a statement that I learned from my MA in education that resonated with me so much and that is, it's quite a tongue twister so I'm going to have to take two to get it right but you need to be careful not to make the measurable important but to make the important measurable. Yeah. And that is so true in education and, and, and I'm... So the more I kind of look at the big picture, the more I see metrics, statistics and data dominating our kind of drive in this neoliberal agenda. Yeah. And that in turn pushes a way much harder to measure and assess things, creativity being mm-hmm. the biggest nightmare for any yeah. measurement metric, and and upscales measurable things compression ratios anything that that is quite black and white absolutely whereas the really important things get rear grounded if that's a word and and this morning i was reading you know the guardian as of course i would be (laughs) (laughs) being the ultimate stereotype yeah but it was talking about um again it's a metric but it was talking about a measurement of kids sense of well-being taken at 15 and Uh unsurprisingly in england we have the lowest metric out of poland uh, finland our kids are on 67 percent, and i'm just thinking what is the damage that this intense neoliberal push Mm. 
this capitalist agenda mm. of the country, constant economic growth, the damage that's having to you, to me, mm. to to our kids, mm-hmm. and it just seems to be exacerbated. It just seems to be getting worse and worse. Yeah, and I think that. Um you know, so coming back to like the whole premise of this podcast, where mm. it's something I, I have tr- had to s- struggle with, I guess, if you can say struggle, I don't know. It's not it's not the, the worst fate in the world, but it's something that I have struggled with the whole of my life is how can I being me and, and I'm just so set up to kind of. I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm not, I don't mean creative in a kind of scatty way or I'm not scatty mm. at all. I'm just, I'm really, I don't know. I find it really hard to fit into a mould. I find it really hard to fit into an institution. Mm. I find it really hard to just be given a, a system and told, right, just, just carry that out. I love making things. I've always mm. loved making things in a, to an unusual degree from what I can see from my friends growing up. So, you know, in the summers when I was 13, I would build whole model villages mm. just because I loved making things, you know? I can picture and, the 13-year-old you. Yeah, <laughs> I'd just be, yeah, I'd just be, you know, in my room, um, just spending the whole day building these model villages, like building a, a hill and a stream and... You know, because I just wanted to make things. I loved Lego. And then with the building the business and building the course, that's been another way of creatively building something. Yeah. Um, and I, I find it really hard to not do that. But I often find it very frustrating to kind of, I guess, fit into somebody else's mm model especially. and you built your um you built your artist career and uh i've kind of used that as a bit of a lead to talk about the mm. recent comments from uh daniel i never know it's ek or ek talking about musicians just needing to work harder to to fit into the the mm. new the new way yeah. of uh, spotify's payments now you're someone that's really succeeded on that platform mm. do you agree with those comments how do you feel about about Spotify and being a creative person and and the the payment infrastructure? They should pay more. There's just absolutely no dispute on that. They should pay more because um, it's, it's it's not fair at the moment the, you know what you get for all the work that you put in and what they re- recoup. It's not mm. fair. It's wildly out of balance. Mm. So there's no doubt that they should be paying more royalties to musicians. Um, I, th- I also think there should be... It's all very well and good saying you should work harder in order to make the, this this system, this algorithm work for you. But it, that's not that's not enough if you don't give people the resources to do that, give people the strategies and the the process to do that. You're just expected to kind of scramble around mm. and hope that that makes sense. And for me, I, I benefited from it without doing anything in terms of having a Spotify strategy. I barely really valued Spotify in any way before I started seeing I was getting plays on my tracks because it was so in its infancy. Um, I really just never thought about it and I just stuck up, stuck my tracks up and I thought, well, I'm just going to release tracks because I want, I don't want to go to my deathbed not doing it. So I just mm. ticked, yeah, okay, I'll release on Spotify, Deezer, blah, blah, blah. So by the time I started recouping those royalties, um, I really hadn't made much of an effort to do that. So... I I absolutely have no kind of advice on anyone wanting to get into it. But I, what, what I would say is 
I thought... I, we I just have think talked ener- at length about your commitment to you as an artist and the amount of work yeah. you put into that. So we could say that the Spotify uh, plays correlated to the your drive as an artist no doubt yeah no I mean I think I think the reason that happened was partly luck and partly that I worked my butt off but I worked consistently Mm. so that was years of work gone into that that is not Mm. just I released something and a couple of years later this is years and years of that and then also the music I make is good like Mm. I know that might sound a bit kind of um cheeky but it's true it's not shit music Mm. So all of those things have to be in place. I fully believe that. Um, I fully believe if you keep showing up consistently and you're in it for the long haul, you will see results. They just won't won't be what you predict. Mm. So for me, I thought that would be that I would get, you know, lots. I was hoping I would get a record deal, I'd get radio player, you know, get a tour of the world, et cetera, et cetera. What happened was I got Spotify royalties so, yeah, see, it was funny for me. I got the opposite. I didn't get yeah. to my royalties, yeah. but I got signed to Sony, toured the world, played yeah. thousands of banging shows, and yeah. I got a lot of ad. You know, I got a lot of ad and video game syncs for my music. Yes, yeah. So, I think you've got to go into these things with an open mind. That you may mm. have a, an agenda of what you what you want it to do for you, but you've got to be open that it it's mm. probably not going to look like that. You'll you will reap rewards, but you can't predict them right now. And part of that is also because the technology just hasn't been invented yet. So for yeah. me, when I first started releasing music, Spotify didn't exist, or or I think mm. it existed for like a year, literally a year. So um, I had no idea that that was going to be my big success in my music career. No idea. So I think that's really important. But I think on a general level, the way that things have changed for musicians, I would say if I was starting out now, because I'm not releasing music now, I'm really focusing on supporting other women to get into mm. music and teaching. That's my main support, my main focus right now. But if I was going to be, you know, really focusing on that, I'd be focusing on building my own online community. I'd be focusing on really learning about how to market myself and how to record myself and just really kind of have that that control and that knowledge of those mm. processes. Mm-hmm. But I'd also really work on not binding my whole identity and self-worth in the success of that too. Mm-hmm. Which is the Good really advice. tough bit. Yeah. Yeah, I did that. And uh, I did that it too. It didn't end well for me, to be yeah. honest. Um, I felt very fortunate that I kind of navigated my way out of it. Mm-hmm. But um, it can lead you in quite a dark place. And this, the weirdest thing I found was no matter how high up the step ladder of success you go... It's never ending. There's always no. another level. There's and and at the top you've got the Beatles, and they'll never be toppled as popular yeah. music's most successful and important band. Yeah, you can't beat them. No, you know, they, no. that's kind of that crown is taken, mm-hmm. and I think this is very difficult to to get your head round. But what isn't taken is is all of the new emerging opportunities, the yeah. the online performance spaces, the virtual mm-hmm. reality stuff, you know, all all of the new opportunities that progress has brought mm-hmm. to us. There's a lot to play for there. And mm. in a lot of respects, there's never been a better time to be a creative person. Mm. Um, this podcast is really dedicated to the title, well, the theme was creativity as a force for global change. Mm. It's very interesting that you really, you know, the reason I invited you on, on because I think you really embody that, you know, you're, 
focusing all of your energy on creative change. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think there's a what can we do? Do you think as creatives to to continue this change in what feels like politically the most bonkers time I've ever experienced? Yeah. I mean, if Trump gets in again, I mean, what the hell? Yeah. Which I'm fully expecting he will. Yeah, and the, the, the yeah. weirdest thing is it probably will, and I'm thinking, yeah, this is yeah. more likely than unlikely. So yeah. what what do you think we can do to change mm. things with our creative practice? Mm. It's a big question. <laughs> it's a big question. I think I think the most important thing right now is creating some kind of intimacy and connection with each other. Really, that's the most important thing that we can do. And I think probably the most nourishing thing that we can do for ourselves and each other. So, um, so for example, what I'm doing with my course, it's not just a course that's flung up on Udemy and you just download it for 10 quid and that's it and you forget about it. My course is like a fully live online learning experience with a community and it's a whole space of its own. And I think mm. I knew that what I, what I was going to create had to be something that had that heart to it and had that real warmth to it Mm. because that's something we lack right now in some ways you know Mm. and and more ways than one you know covid has obviously driven us further apart quite literally and then technology um has created these very strange um digital spaces so i knew that what what people what women need anyway is to have more connections with each other to kind of show that they're not alone and that these insecurities or these talents or these gifts that they have are um, are shared and are worth respecting and attending to, for example. But I knew that you you really can only appreciate that if you have a sense of community and you have a sense of connection. So I think as creatives, that's something that we need to... If, if we want to make change, I think that's something mm. that we have to do. But I think we also really have to search inside of ourselves and it would I think it would be great this is so utopian and I really haven't thought it through but it'd be great if <laughs> like um, all great utopian statements yeah <laughs> <laughs> but I, I would love it if musicians and creatives were able to look inside and really ask what's what is motivating me here mm. you know because for many 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 of us it's fear and I think that a lot of the time when we want to put something out into the world, a lot of the time it's fear that motivates us. It's fear of not being good enough. It's fear that um, we're going to live a life of disappointment and boredom. Mm. It's all those fears. And I really, really recommend, and I'm still working on this, but coming from a place of joy, which I know sounds so, <laughs> Jesus Christ, Isabel, but coming from that place of, does do I care about this? Does it light me up? Does yeah. it nourish me? Do I really mm. think it's important? Um, is it saying something that needs to be said? Whatever it is, coming from that place rather than, oh God, I hate my job. I hate my life. Mm. I've got to do this quickly. I've got to get this out. Oh my God, I don't feel good enough. I need to. I need everyone to love my music or whatever it is they're doing. Mm. And to be really clear on that. And a lot of the time it'll be confusing because it'll be a whole bunch of stuff together. But I think that's really important because those systems of having some kind of career have disintegrated mm. in the traditional mm. sense. Yeah, so there totally are not... Have, yeah. 
Yeah, they've disintegrated. There's not people anymore, even in publishing and, you know, other creative industries, there's not people anymore handing you that check and saying, mm. you have three years, write the album or write the book or whatever. Yeah. Now it's about you scrambling at the new platforms that are opening up and making those, making that future yourself. So you have to really tap in with yourself and say, why am I doing this? Because mm. if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, i.e. fear... You're gonna you're gonna burn out, and you're gonna look back, and you will realise you you did things in ways that were not supportive and haven't got you where you wanted to go anyway. So, I think that's more important than ever because there's there isn't anyone that's gonna no one's coming to save you now. No one's you know which I know sounds really scary, but it's no so one, true though, isn't it? Shock no one's horror. coming. Yeah, nobody's that, coming. You know, you can don't throw yourself off the boat because no one's going to jump in after you. You no. are, you know. I think a lot of talent shows give the impression that there's a whole team of people scouting the world just for you. Yeah, yeah. But the sad reality of that is, yes, they are. And if they find you, they're going to take all control and all income. Yeah. And they're going to use you for as long as you sell. Yeah. As long as as long as you're interesting, and then mm-hmm. as soon as that has happened, they will mm-hmm. throw you away. Absolutely. And the saddest thing about that is people seem okay with building up their whole life experience, so mm-hmm. years and years of singing and stories and mm-hmm. relationships, for it to be a small window of time where they those all those experiences are exploited to someone else's commercial gain. Mm-hmm. And then once that's gone, it's like that, that idea of you can't step into the same river twice. Once mm. you've exposed yourself in that way, no one will ever see you the same way again. Yeah, yeah, And absolutely. it may be a positive experience, and I'm not saying it's always going to be negative. Some people may have gone through that route and succeeded and got where they want to be. Mm. But I really question, is that transaction worth it? Your whole life mm. for that? Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I personally have never felt comfortable with that and I don't no. think that is worth it. No, I, I agree. And I think that's a reason why my career has been the way it is. You know, I've, I've mm. often ran to the hills when I've even had a sniff of that, mm. um, which has definitely made my career harder, you mm. know, in terms of like just getting a quick win of, oh, somebody thinks I'm good at this. Oh, this is done really well. Great. Mm. I didn't really have that. So I I understand the attraction. And for some people, actually, actually, that is quite a good fit because they don't want to put in the hard graft of building something themselves. They just want Mm. to get up on stage and sing or they just want to Mm. whatever it is. So it's not to say like it really is if you if you are genuinely creative, because that to me isn't like genuinely creative. To me, that's that you have a skill and you can replicate it time and time again and you enjoy doing Mm. that great Mm. creative creativity is where you are able to actually use your imagination and then realize a vision and Mm. put that into some kind of meaningful output in the world that's creativity Mm. so um you could be creative but be you know head of a paper company um in slough like the office or something like but you could be a really creative person because of the way you run that factory or something you could be really uncreative but have a fucking brilliant singing voice and sing on the x factor Mm. so Mm. you know creativity is is i I guess i'm speaking to those people who really embody that that's like proper creative muscle there Mm. and just have that real need like the 13 year old isabel to just make stuff and build stuff and um and have an idea in your head and just make it happen Mm. um 
So I think that when you're doing that, you really have to, it's, it's a daily mindset struggle. Like on, on the daily, you have to be talking to yourself about what you what the narratives are you're telling yourself, like you mm. and your book, you know, mm-hmm. um, wh- whether you're procrastinating, whether you're getting in your own way, um, mm. why you think something's going to happen or not happen um, and, and why you're doing it. The most mm. important thing is why are you doing this? And mm. I, I also kind of think that especially when I when I talk to younger musicians, I say to them now more than ever, you have to be interested in who's listening to your music. Mm. You really, really do. Um, a lot of the time people are focused on how many followers they've got, you know, all that kind of stuff. But you have to be focused on who's interested in your music, who's listening to your music. Mm. You have to want to get to know them and you have to have conversations with them and you have to understand them inside out. Mm. Um, that's really important yes. now. Social media metrics measure width, they measure the amount of, but they never measure depth. They don't measure how much that one person loved it so much. They don't measure that. No, because, you know, you can have 10,000 Facebook followers and none of them are going to buy you a new single because they're not engaged and they don't care. But if you're speaking to people because you know who they are and you really have that ability to cut through that screen because Mm. you can see them, and you know what they're feeling and thinking, then you can start sharing your music. And then it gets more exciting sharing your music because then you can start sharing them your music for them. And then it's mm. not just, I've got a new single out, buy my single. It's uh, You realise that the people who are probably interested in your music may have also gone through postnatal depression, let's say. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So then you can start saying, I wrote this song two weeks after my son was born. I was going through this, yeah. this and this. If you've ever suffered with this, I think you'll love it. Um, mm. It really, you know, helped me move on. Blah, blah, blah. That's so much more interesting to connect yeah. with someone like that. And it's so much more interesting if you're on the receiving end of it. So yeah. I know I've kind of diverged a bit into social media marketing here, but... Well, it's, it's a big issue, but yeah. it's interesting. But I think it you know, relates to why are you doing this? You know, are you doing yeah. this just to get just to get that affirmation that, yeah, I, I'm okay. Lots of people mm. like my music, I'm okay. Lots of people like my Facebook page, I'm okay. I've made some money out of my music, I'm okay. But mm. actually, that's just all about fear. And mm. why are you doing it? Are you doing it to actually communicate something and express something that needs to be shared? Mm. Are you doing it because it's important for you because it's releasing something or whatever it is, and therefore somebody else might have that experience listening to it. So yeah. now more than ever, from a personal point of view, from a wider success point of view, from a you know global point of view, we have to become actually genuinely interested in each other and genuinely, mm. genuinely self-reflective of, of ourselves. Mm. Yeah. I think it's fascinating, isn't it? I've got a couple of points to say relating to what you said that you know, firstly, the music industry used to measure the singles chart mm. and then that depth was measured with the album chart. So if someone yeah. went and bought the album, that was like, they're really committed. Yeah. And and now I, I see that translated from amount of followers. And even though a lot of people I speak to who are in the music industry kind of frontline business, they say those, those numbers are important. What they're more interested in is the connectivity, the communication, yeah. the engagement metrics right. with how much are these people engaging with this person rather than how many followers do they have. Um, yeah. The second point I thought was interesting was, you know, going back to your uh, fear and getting things done, I found that Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art, great Mm. for that and giving a name to it, The Resistance. 
And that has just helped me so much. And I'm just reading Seth Godin's book, Lynchpin, and he Mm. adopts Stephen Pressfield's The Resistance. And he gives a whole list of fabulous reasons why you don't do things related to The Resistance. And he talks about um, the lizard brain Mm. in this book, The Lynchpin. And... He says that the lizard brain is the oldest part of our brain and the part of our brain that's about um, communication and creativity is the newest part of our brain. Mm. So when our fear response gets triggered, so we're in imminent danger, the lizard brain kicks in and it saves us, which is great. You need that if there's a tiger running at you. Mm -hmm. You don't really Mm -hmm. want to be thinking about your book at that moment in time. So it's hardwired into us to override thoughts about your podcast for, oh my God, there's a tiger, fight or run. Yeah. Um, So it's great. But in a lot of modern situations, apparently this part of our brain gets triggered Mm -hmm. unnecessarily Mm -hmm. and it paralyzes our creativity. Mm. And I love this idea of the resistance and found it fascinating. So yeah, anyone who's listened to this, definitely check out Stephen Pressfield's The War of Mm. Art and Seth Godin's Mm -hmm. Lynchpin as a real way of educating yourself to be more creative. So yeah, it's been great, Isabel. I think we should wrap. It's been a wonderful conversation. (laughs) I could talk to you all day and have done. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I know, yeah, that's right. We literally have done that. So I'm going to put some links to your community of makers. Great, thank you. Um, I would love to link to your book, but you've not written it yet. I'd love to no. link to my book, but I've not written it yet. So I think you should make yours a book because I think yeah. I'd love to put that on the reading list of of the people I teach and work with. Oh, I yeah. think that would be a real asset. So maybe yeah. hopefully that can drive you. When maybe you're one thinking, day. Yeah, one day. I would love to write a book for sure. And I, I love writing. turn the course into a book. Turn the course into a book. Or turn the course into a book. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Because I think we need a new version of The Artist's Way. I love The Artist's Mm. Way. I think it's a great book. Because sometimes some people I give it to, they get a little bit done in with some of the... Oh, God. uh, Yeah, like all the God stuff. I know. I didn't want to say it, but they get a bit done in with the God stuff. Yeah, I know. I I find that hard as well. And I think, um, yeah, I think that... No, I'd love to write a book about... um, Well, one book that I'd love to write is about... um, something to do with walking and listening and creativity i'm not sure mm. yeah. but we'll see yeah i like walking listening creativity but it's been yeah. great to have you thank you so much for taking the time out to have this chat no I thanks really, for having me really enjoyed it it's been great fun and it's cheered me up no end because i was in a bit of a oh, dark good. spot this, I, was oh, God. A, I was in a bit of a dark spot at eight twenty nine this morning oh, before that, i logged on no that, that, that was like i said that was me last week and mm. uh, and I think it's so easy to get there. And I think, um, yeah, you, it, this is why I, I'm... For me, I know that I, I need to start taking all the workaholism seriously because I know that when I get exhausted and I get overwhelmed and then it all starts feeling very, very dark. And, yeah, I'm working on working on that. Yeah. So I know well, I know how that feels. It's a bank holiday weekend and I've had myself saying in the past, oh, but I don't work in a bank. Yes, yeah, yeah. So I'm are you taking, taking yeah. I'm taking I'm it taking, off too. Yeah. Mm. I think the the uh, the real um, change that's happened in me taking more work in university mm. has been I'm now really looking forward to that bank holiday weekend yeah. and I'm going to take it and I'm going to hang out with my kids mm. and mm. I'm going to 
party. Great. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that's a slightly diminished version of partying with, <laughs> with a one, a two-year-old yeah. and a six-year-old. Yeah. But um, I'm going to party and I'm yeah. going to enjoy the weekend. That's great. No, I, I hope I'm the you same. do too. No, I'm the same. I, I was like, I was not going to take it off. And then after these four days away from work, I was like, no, I'm yeah. definitely taking off. doesn't matter how much work I've got to do. Fuck it. I deserve mm. to have time off as well. I need time yeah. off to do my work yeah. well. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, Isabel, thank you so much. Have a great no day. No problem. You too. Thanks for being on Play in the System and I'll see you soon. My pleasure. I'll see you soon, Matt. Great. Bye. Okay, bye. So yes, that wraps up episode two of Play in the System, the podcast featuring the wonderful, human, caring and friend, Dr. Isabel Anderson. I feel so lucky to know Isabel. I think she's a real asset to me in my life and will be to you in your life. So if you want to reach out, Isabel runs the female DIY musician, which is all about getting people to recording. I think that is such an, it's such an important time to engage creatively. This week, as I'm recording this outro, we saw the return to university life where I work as a senior lecturer and course leader at the University of Westminster Isabel works at the ICMP in London. And I felt deep levels of anxiety in going back to normality. In fact, it's not normal at all. It's it's kind of crazy. And in fact, I felt so anxious, I made myself ill and couldn't go in for my first day, which is ridiculous. And I feel if I'm experiencing anxiety and I don't feel socially anxious as a person... Other people out there must be really suffering. So if you are, reach out, connect and make. A good friend of mine and wonderful human being, Eddie Temple Morris, is a Patreon for My Black Dog. And also there's the Calm Society, which is a campaign against living miserably. So if you are struggling out there, reach out or make things. Get in touch with your community. Get in touch with me. Get in touch with Isabel. And yeah, make stuff. Thank you for being part of the Play in the System community. It means so much to me to have you here. Stay tuned. New episode coming soon. Lots of love as always. See ya.